0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks.
1: Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. and God bless. I just tricked you. I messed with your mind. This is Jamar Tisby and Tyler Burns, our co-host for Pastor Mike, cannot be with us this week, but we have the always on fire. He melts the microphone every time he picks it up. Pastor Aaron James in the house, ladies and gentlemen. What's going on, brother?
0: I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm glad I get to be on here with you today.
1: Well, we've been talking for a couple days now. As we record this, it's been a momentous week in the life of Protestantism. The Southern Baptist Convention is holding or has held its biggest annual business meeting. The, The Southern Baptist Convention is what it's called and sends thousands of messengers. I think there were 11,000 messengers who participated this year. Alongside that, there were some other denominations uh, that that also met among those, uh, the one with which I am most familiar, the PCA is holding its General Assembly as we speak. And and a lot's been going down. And so we've just been kind of communicating back and forth about uh, our perspectives on events, especially as Christians who are also African-Americans. And so we just wanted to break down some of that. Um, Aaron, you're in the SBC or you're familiar with the SBC. Can you tell us what the convention is about just from like a, a an administrative standpoint?
0: Well, there are several things that take place at the annual meetings um, from Resolutions being introduced, new officers being elected, um, even the floor opening uh, for input to be given from the messengers that are sent from local churches all over the country. Um, There is a pastor's conference that takes place before the official meetings begin, and there are uh, messages that are delivered throughout. Um, there are reports given from the North American Missions Board, uh, from the International Missions Board, um, reports on missionaries and church planning and things of that nature. And, and, um, and so there is this mixture of kind of uh, business uh, things that, that take place, but also uh, things that are supposed to be a time of encouragement and refreshing spiritually to those who attend uh, wherever the meetings are held every year.
1: It sounds pretty similar to what happens at the general assembly for the Presbyterian Church in that it's a business meeting it's designed to get things done and to pass motions and resolutions and conduct uh the annual kind of house cleaning that needs to be taken care of as well as discuss and, and make decisions about important issues. So think a lot of, you know, Robert's rules of order, a lot of points of order, a lot of ruling out of order, a lot of long, dry speeches, at least in my experience. (laughs) Um, Nevertheless, important work gets done. But I think there's also, like you mentioned, there's a, there's a there's a big sort of encouragement and exhortation aspect to it. So from the sermons to various lunch gatherings, all of these things, uh, they're designed, it, it kind of has a conference feel in in that respect. Um, but it's odd for meetings like this to make national news headlines. And uh, the PCA, not so much, but the SBC once again has made national news headlines, I'll remind folks that last year in 2017, there was a big deal at the SBC uh, meeting about a resolution to condemn the alt-right. It was proposed by a black pastor in Texas, Dwight McKissick, who, uh, you know, in the wake of Charlottesville, this is not that long after Charlottesville had occurred, he proposed this resolution so that the SBC, as a, as a denomination would make a statement condemning the alt-right, neo-Nazism, those kinds of things. Well, it didn't even make it out of committee. Folks online kind of caught wind. There was this big kerfluffle on social media. Committee ended up passing a resolution that, in my personal opinion, was much more watered down than the original, but at least they passed it. But the, the, the failure to pass it the first time was an issue. Um, and the SBC's in the news again this year, It was in the news uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Me Too movement has sort of come to the white evangelical church, uh, specifically the SBC and the ordeal with Paige Patterson. Aaron, have you kept on that? Can you kind of give us a rundown of that?
0: The issue with uh, Paige Patterson, I guess we can start there, is that surrounding controversy concerning uh, comments that he had made on two occasions, one concerning his comments that he made um, about a teenage girl and the way her, uh, her, just her physical appearance, right? Uh, the way that he spoke of her physical appearance was, was inappropriate. And then, and I was in a sermon. Yes. And then there was also um, the report of counsel that he gave to a battered woman in terms of him giving her counsel and her coming back to him after having been beaten again by her husband asking him whether or not he was happy concerning the counsel that he gave her before that and him responding yes he was happy.
1: He was happy because it led the guy to come to church or something like that, right?
0: Yeah, that 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 basically she was that she was being a, a faithful wife or a good wife, uh, in you know, in his estimation, in terms of sticking it out and continuing to, to pray for her husband, even in spite of being a battered woman. And then the latest thing: now he was actually scheduled to give, uh, to give a, a message at the convention this year. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Before that, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary basically cut ties with him, and uh shortly after that he withdrew uh his name from speaking at the convention
1: yeah they 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 initially gave him like a golden parachute right they gave him president emeritus status and then they were going to let him live in this luxurious home on southwestern's campus rent free uh, but they said he's he's no longer the president and so people were like scratching their heads like is this a punishment cuz this is it's kind of a nice deal to to get away with and then only after it came out that uh he had been, he had misled them about reporting uh, this rape case to the police he hadn't actually reported it only then did they actually fully cut ties and cut the strings to that golden parachute i think so that was all yes. even just in the lead up <laughs>
0: yeah th- yeah this was yeah this was just leading up to the annual meeting <laughs>
1: It's such a far-fetched kind of a deal. You, we should mention, I mean, Paige Patterson was one of the architects of um, what some people call the conservative resurgence. Others call it the conservative takeover. This, There's all kinds of webs and strings attached to this. It's it's not just one issue. And so, like we were saying, that's all just to the lead up. So that's already making national news headlines. And then it comes out like the day before it actually happens that Vice President Mike Pence is going to speak at the SBC meeting. Uh, This is not the first time a politician has spoken to the convention. Uh, I think George W. Bush and then Condoleezza Rice gave video messages. I think the first time happened in the 70s under Gerald Ford. And so it's not necessarily unusual to have a high elected official address the convention. But I was quite disturbed (laughs) about it because having Mike Pence, who actually invited himself, from what I understand, the vice president's office reached out to leaders of the convention and said the VP would like to speak, and then they accepted. And so that in itself is is problematic because why is the vice president reaching out to this group? You can say and we'll get into this, but you can say all you want, oh he's a christian, he just wants to, you know, encourage the church or whatever. This was a political maneuver to play to a white evangelical base. Uh no doubt. 81% of whom those who voted voted for the current president. And so they know this is this is a core of their constituency, and it is a very bald political move to say, "Hey, I want to come to your biggest national meeting and just say a few words." And it turned out we all knew this was going to happen, but but when it actually happened, it just kind of proved the point. It turned out to be a political stump speech, so. There's all kinds of problems with this. I'll rant and rave for a second, but Aaron, what was what was your sort of initial reaction when you heard the VP was coming to speak there?
0: I didn't see that Vice President Pence was going to be there until I was sitting at the gate um, at uh, our local airport trying to depart, right? And it was unsettling for me because I expected that our time there should have been one of not saying that we shouldn't celebrate victories, but my expectation was that it would be a time of solemn repentance and reflection, that with all of the things that had been taking place and coming to light, that the posture of the meetings would be one marked more by humility and lament over, uh, very real issues concerning peoples whose lives have been, um, impacted and traumatized, whether, uh, the Me Too movement, abuse, uh, racial issues, things of that nature, uh, that have been taking place. And so it wasn't that at all. Um, it turned out to be this kind of (laughs) triumphant, you know, um, uh, speech given, uh, and which was basically a stump speech. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it was, it was very unsettling. It came across to me as extremely tone deaf and I'm not talking tone deaf in terms of, Oh, you know, we hurt your feelings. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm talking about in terms of principle. I'm talking about in terms of purpose. I believe that there was an opportunity, To make a very righteous statement in terms of solidarity, in terms of regaining and establishing a credible prophetic witness within our nation, um, in terms of putting forth a posture of humility and repentance and even seeking restitution. And it wasn't that at all. And I think that's the thing that I found to be... The most disturbing yeah. about the speech and uh, him, him basically, and uh, him being there and everything that took place with that.
1: Yeah, man, I I was hot, I was angered and upset for all the reasons you just listed. I mean, context matters, right? Like there, there's all this stuff going on with Page Patterson and the Me Too movement, and then you sort of gleefully from the leaders accept an invitation from the vice president, who is the number one cheerleader for a president who has been notoriously misogynistic, uh, said sexist things. I mean, what message does that send to the women of the SBC, uh, to the men who, who try to support them? I think it's a, a horrible juxtaposition, giving, given everything that was happening leading up to it. And you, you want to talk about a stump speech. There was a guy uh on Twitter who analyzed Pinch's speech was it's only like fifteen minutes or something, but he 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 searched uh the the words and he found that in the speech that the vice president gave, he used the word president sixty one times, the word Trump twelve times, the word Donald six times, the word God nine times, Christ two times, and Jesus one time. So that gives you a sense of of the content of the speech. And I watched some of the clips of the recordings, right? And you can hear plenty of sort of applause and cheers in the background as he hit all the main sort of religious right talking points from pro-life to uh, bringing soldiers. They were actually, I think... um, dead soldiers home from North Korea and and having them reinterred in the United States to, you know, whatever you want to name, he just hit all the, all the right notes and just played it like a fiddle. And all of that to me was, I like the way you broke down tone deaf. I would probably use a different word. I would call it foolish to have vice president speak there. And I mean, foolish in the biblical sense as in the opposite of wise, it was foolish. Yes, uh, because of all that other stuff going on, and I said I, I I went on a rant on Facebook and then on Twitter, and so on Facebook I said uh, that this recommitted the Southern Baptists to the tacit support of a racist, xenophobic, sexist administration and those who support it. Now, I got a lot of pushback on that line in particular, because people wanted to essentially rebut it by saying, well, not all of us. You know what I'm saying? Um, So, I mean, how how do you respond to that? Because my point was, Vice President Pence is the number one surrogate for Trump. And he hasn't spoken out against the president's you know, malicious lies, uh, his his racism, his xenophobia, all of that. But then people want to say, "Well, you can't lump all of the administration or all Republicans into that camp." How do you respond to something like that?
0: Well, the first thing that I would say is that, without a doubt, this was a brazen appeal to the base that contributed to Donald Trump's election victory. Mm that is what this was this was it came across as a big thank you right you know um and and just kind of uh you know just just tons of red meat you know yeah, right. <laughs> to, to, to folks with the ravenous appetites for it with all of the points that you mention uh those 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 party platforms those things that that's what you say to rouse the base and I would even dare to say that this was even possibly a setup for the re-election campaign. Oh,
1: snap. How so? You know,
0: uh, like, like, so for instance, we know that you played a major role in getting us in office. So we just want to remind you that we see uh, you and we're going to need you in a couple of years. Yes. Or... you yeah. know what I'm saying. And
1: from a historical perspective, it it is, it is it is really interesting because you'll there there are books written on the rise of the religious right and 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 recent books as in the 2010s were basically saying that although you know sort of the moral majority crowd, the 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 religious right kind of voters had gained a lot of cultural and political clout. I mean, you can't run as a Republican and not pay attention to white evangelicals at this point. They hadn't actually achieved many of their legislative goals. I mean, nobody's repealed Roe v. Wade in in 40 plus years. Uh, You know, nobody was able to to stop uh, Obergefell, the Obergefell decision, legalizing gay marriage nationwide. And so a lot of what the religious right was promoting legislatively actually got defeated until this president, where they feel like, and and honestly, uh, he has thrown a lot of red meat to that white evangelical base. And so it's just in the irony of history that the religious folks would get more of what they want from arguably one of the most irreligious presidents we've ever had. Just an interesting juxtaposition there that I've noted.
0: It is, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and, and going back to to your previous point in question, though, in terms of the pushback that people would give you in saying that, well, it's not all of us. My, my point is that if it's not all of us, then who? Uh-oh. authorize this to happen. Yeah. Who made the decisions? Who is it? So so is there a disconnect between those who make the decisions and call the shots and those who are uh, on the ground, per right. se? I don't believe that there is a great chasm between the two. Mm. And the reason that I say that is because if there was, then the crowds outside praying in disagreement and silent protest or, you know, against him being there and the crowd inside giving constant applause to the points that the vice president was making, yeah. then 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 the size of the two would have been inverted, uh, right? Uh. There would have been more outside than there were actually inside. The truth of the matter is, is that Yes, there is a contingent. There is a remnant if you will of some sort of faithful brothers and sisters to the ministry of the gospel who disagree with these things in a biblically principled manner. But overwhelmingly the majority are is for these things. They hmm. they give very enthusiastic support and assent to it. And so to say that well it's not all of us at some point we're going to have to Look at the structure, look at the way the institution was founded, look at the way the institution is currently constructed and the way that it operates in the present. And we have to come to grips with the very harsh reality that not much has changed. Wow. And so for people would say, well, there are people of color within that are speaking, and there is a platform here, and -and so-and-so spoke at the pastor's conference, and all of these things. I'm not saying that those things don't necessarily represent progress, but what Mm -hmm. I would caution people is that people of color throughout history, and you could speak to this much better than I could, but I would say that Throughout history, people of color have been allowed and have to operate within predominantly white spaces. They have been allowed to have platforms within predominantly white spaces. But contingent upon, you don't rock the boat too much. Like you have to still toe this sort of line. Now, I'm not throwing a blanket indictment on anyone, but that dynamic does exist. It has existed. And I believe that it's still applicable in many ways to the Southern Baptist Convention Yes
1: preach it yes okay you just said a mouthful there it's that it's wonderful so so one of my main issues was that by having number one simply a republican come it reinforces like i said before this issue that white evangelical automatically equals republican and that's the issue right like there's nobody's Nobody's contending that white evangelical equals Democrat. <laughs> um, so yeah. it's a particular issue. It's a partisan issue, right? So so there's there's one thing. Here's an unpopular opinion, and I'll get to uh, uh, the reason it's unpopular in a second. But I would have far less problems with a, a, a Republican person of political officials showing up to a convention if – Democrats also came. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Whether it was you know alternating years or they both came. Here's here's the two conditions where I think a political official like the president or vice president, secretary of state, could address something like the convention. Others will disagree that they can at all. I I I think that's fine too. But if they did, I think two things would need to happen. Number one, like I said, they'd have to have both major parties i'd limit it to both major parties because if you don't then you got to talk about independence and how much support do they get and all that stuff maybe if they make it past Mm -hmm. a certain threshold primaries or something like that then you could set some barrier whatever as long as there's somewhat equal representation the other condition would be it's a controlled conversation they don't just get to have the mic and say whatever they want And so it's either an interview style format where there's somebody up there asking them specific questions that may have nothing to do with politics at all, may just have to do with their faith. Or maybe it's how they exercise their faith in a political realm generally and not in a partisan manner. Or maybe it is they give the person the topic and say, you can speak on this. Uh, But don't just come up with your own thing. So a lot of people disagree and and say that no political officials at any time. But that's the crux of the problem for me. I think that solution may, in fact, lend to the problem. Because if you say no political officials ever, and then that trickles down, so to speak, to congregations as well, then what's happening is you're essentially saying that the church is apolitical. It's non-political, which is actually impossible. All of our public yeah, decisions right. have ramifications for civic life and not just what we do, but what we don't do. It's not just our actions, but our inaction that have political ramifications as well. And I think the tendency among white evangelicals is to respond to hyper-partisanship and hyper-politicism by being apolitical or non-political, and just throwing up their hands and say, I'm not involved. I'm not going to get myself dirty. This is completely outside the realm of the church, which is not a solution either. To me, the better solution is literally discipling our people about how to be good citizens of both the kingdom of God and the earthly kingdom in which they inhabit which happens to be the United States of America. But if you just pull out that, see what happens now is if they say no political officials ever, then the convention never has to deal with the political ramifications of its stances because we just don't talk about it. But guess what? It's still happening at the grassroots level that people are being polarized by politics, dividing congregations, dividing families, and they're not getting discipled by the place that's best equipped to do it, which is the church.
0: Yes. You know, if ever there was a time to communicate very openly and to uh, put on display a break away from the idea that GOP equals evangelical, right? This would have been the time. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) This would have been the time. And I believe that as we look back on this in the years to come, this would, I think this is going to show itself to be a very serious uh, tactical error in terms of the business of God's kingdom and representing uh, the nature and the character of God to the culture at large and to properly platform and put on display the truth and the power of the gospel. When you have the second highest office in the land, giving a speech such as that within that context, it communicates that there is some sort of an alliance. Now you can say what you want, but I'm telling you that's, I mean, I know people talk about sometimes the optics of certain situations and things of that nature, but it communicates that there is a very real alliance. And when that happens, you cannot maintain as an organization, as a cooperation, a faithful prophetic witness to those who are in authority when there is when those sorts of alliances are in place. It, it's it's I would venture to say that it's impossible. Um and, and so because what was given seemed like wholehearted approval. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and right. uh and and that was that was evident with the applause. And so now any, any voice that comes after this in any sort of uh, uh, critical way, in terms of toward the administration or toward those who are in office, which I think that uh, is healthy, uh, especially as we stand for that which is righteous, that which is in line with God's righteous nature and character and his holiness and the reality of his kingdom and the way that it should manifest on earth. um, Where's the credibility now?
1: That's right. That's right. That's
0: right. Where is the credibility to do that?
1: And I think what, what everything you're saying brings to mind a phrase. Prophetic witness requires prophetic distance. If you think mm. about a football game, you've got the head coach on the sidelines, but oftentimes you've got the offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. They're not on the sidelines. They're up in the booth. Why? Because mm-hmm. they need to get a, a distance from the field so that they can see the wider patterns, so that they can see the whole field. What's happened now is that white evangelicals and SBC leaders aren't just on the sidelines. They're they're practically in the game of politics and maneuvering and not even calling the plays, all of those things. So they don't have, and we as Christians are constantly in threat of not having the prophetic distance necessary for a prophetic witness. And this isn't just the SPC, right? It's it's all of us because we all desire in some way to influence the culture, which I think is a good thing. But when we start doing it in worldly ways, like through the power of politics, then... We compromise ourselves, which is not me saying don't be involved in politics. I'm just being, I'm just saying be constantly on guard. And it doesn't seem like the SBC was on guard as they allowed Vice President Pence to speak at the meeting. And I'll, I'll lodge this one last major issue I have with Pence's presence at the convention. It was not simply that he's Republican and there's this almost indistinguishable difference between white evangelicals and Republicans. It's not just that he was a politician in general, and that raises all kinds of issues about the church and politics. It was that it was this vice president in this administration. Listen, it's not that he was a Republican, (laughs) Is that he's under this president, and the problem is this president has done so many egregious things, whether they're, they're whether he said them or actually done them, from his comments about women to the ripping apart of families at the border to a capricious and seemingly illogical uh, foreign policy if you can even call it a policy, to his statements about the very fine people on both sides of the Charlottesville rally, to... All kinds, I mean, he launched his campaign calling, saying that Mexico is sending over rapists, right? So there's all of these things that have to do with this specific president and then the vice president being his number one surrogate. And my issue is the hesitancy, even from the people in the SBC who objected to president or vice president Pence's presence at the convention, their hesitancy to call out the particularly egregious nature of this administration. And if you can't call a thing a thing, if you can't call a sin a sin, then you're dancing around the problem and you'll never really solve it. So that was my one of my big issues with the way even objectors handled this matter.
0: I agree wholeheartedly. You have to be able to say things specifically. And i'm at this place to where i believe that we not only have to name the sins in particular and be very careful and nuanced and principled as to how we go about that but i also believe that we need to name names because if we're not able to do that then what we're doing, what we're doing in essence is we're communicating to those who have been marginalized, those who have been traumatized, those who have been offended and wounded, that in essence, they don't matter. That in the endeavor to, like, if we were really seeking for healing and restitution and unity, then the concern for those who have been wronged, would be greater than continuing to prop up our institutions and maintain the veneer of righteousness to the public or allowing things to take place in order to maintain our proximity to the center of culture and our proximity to power, uh, trying to hold on to to influence that I don't know if God has really called us to have. Um, And the reason that I say that is because when our allegiance is primarily to Christ and His work of redemption within the earth and the role that we play in being used by God within His kingdom during our time here, then we will not be concerned first and foremost with how we appear uh, to to those who are in authority or, or staying close to them we will embrace the margins that's what we see throughout the history of the church and so this 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 reckoning with the reality that the church the covenant community of god's people have always been on the margins of society that we do our work we do this. We are used by God to do this great redemptive work that makes much of him. We do it from the margins. And what I'm seeing is a reluctance to embrace that identity in order to hold on to political influence and cultural influence in, in the here and now. And it's a major disconnect, man.
1: Now, we've, I, I have many informal connections to the SBC, but you have some very personal connections connections and formal connections to the SBC and you've been on a journey. So take us through where you are now in terms of your relationship of being involved with the SBC.
0: The journey over the last few years has been a difficult one because the nature of the cooperation, for instance, on paper, is about doing the work of the gospel, planting churches, commissioning and sending missionaries, both domestically and abroad. And when you look at a goal such as that, I mean, it's definitely worthy. We want to preach the gospel faithfully. We want to shepherd well in a manner that glorifies Christ. We want to lead and to live and walk uprightly before the Lord and represent His kingdom faithfully. And so when when we're speaking of these things, it's like, yeah, you know, I want to do that. Like, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? But what happens is that in that endeavor, at least as it is spoken, when you begin to recognize that as a minority, you're not as welcomed as you thought, um, and that You could be more welcomed if you would just check your culture at the door. Um, You would be more welcomed if you didn't talk about the problem of racism. Uh, You'd be more welcomed if you if you embraced more of a nationalistic stance (laughs) and. and and not so much on America's sins of the past and the present and 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 how those things affect us and the work that the 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 multitude of work <laughs> that we have yet to do to address these issues that have exist uh within our country and so um the journey has been difficult in that way and honestly right now there's a lot of prayer conversation Uh, And 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 trepidation on our part as to what our future is, because we desire to do gospel work. We desire to do kingdom work. But at the same time, kingdom work is not only the faithful proclamation of a glorious gospel that the spirit of God uses to bring the dead to life, but it's also about reaching out to those who are poor loving the poor, loving the immigrant, loving the orphan, loving the widow, embracing and identifying and taking losses with the marginalized. And when you come at ministry from from that aspect, man, it's, it's becoming harder and harder to continue to say that, yes, we have a place here. Does that make sense?
1: I can imagine a lot of people are where you are in terms of just being frustrated, especially a lot of black folks. Um, Is it somehow giving up if your church withdraws from the SBC?
0: Not at all. Um, To say that it was giving up would be to assume that the only way that we could engage in faithful ministry, church planting, missions, work and things of that nature is to be, in cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention, (laughs) and we know that that's not true. I know that there are dear brothers and sisters who make the call to continue to work from the inside and to be patient, but my response is, when does patience cease to be a virtue? Hmm. When does my patience transform into enabling dysfunction? And I think there's a healthy level of discernment that we have to exercise here. And we also have to be okay with taking the necessary losses that come with taking a stand for righteousness. And I believe that a lot of the reluctance that we see in terms of breaking fellowship, and I really want to be wrong, like I hope I'm wrong, but this is how I feel. So I'm just going to lay this out there. I believe that due to certain platforms that are given and due to even certain uh, monetary and economic advantages uh, and things like that that come with cooperation, I believe those are the things that keep a lot of minorities in (laughs) uh, Uh, cooperation.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, does it make or what sense does it make for black people specifically uh, and pastors in particular to remain in the SBC given? everything from its foundings uh, to the present day issues that it has with race. What sense or does it make any sense for a Black pastor to remain in the SBC?
0: Yeah, it's, it's starting to make less and less sense. Again, going back to the events that have taken place this week, it's like for every five steps that it seems that we take in the right direction, something happens that makes it seem like we just took 10 steps back. And it gives the impression that even in terms of the resolutions and the speech, that those things really have no substance and that we don't have the luxury of waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, I don't believe that it's right. Uh, You know, Jamar, I keep going back to King Josiah. He was a young king. The Lord had his hand on him from an early age. He was confronted with the truth of God's word. The Lord convicted him deeply. He saw the disconnect between their current situation and the righteous standard of God's word. And he went about carrying on this very radical reform in order to bring things back in line with the word of God. And when I read King Josiah's account in scripture, I don't see someone who is concerned with what is this going to cost me? What's the public perception? Uh, You know, uh, I'm going to lose this. I'm going to lose that. I just see this dedication to bringing about the necessary reforms and doing that which was necessary in order to lead the nation back into conformity with the will of God. And sometimes there are organizational changes and things of that nature that do come about slowly. But then there are other times that call for radical change that call for drastic measures, not because we're trying to appeal to the culture, not because we're trying to be politically correct, not because we're trying to put off a better image of who we are, but because of the righteous standard of God's nature and character and the truth of his word and what he requires of us. And I don't see that urgency. Mm. And so it's starting to make less and less sense. If 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 these things matter the way that we say they do like if if we could look at a place and say we are not in conformity with the righteousness of God. We are not in line with his word. The Lord is not pleased with what's going on. But, yeah, we'll take our time. No rush. Hmm. Let's just be patient. Yeah, but it's been like this for so long. I don't believe that those are, I don't believe that those excuses hold weight in the presence of the creator of the universe Mm. and the Lord of glory.
1: I believe Martin Luther King wrote a book called Why We Can't Wait. (laughs) So this is an old problem. (laughs) I'll give a couple of the things I've been wrestling with, right? Because there's a big question. Do you work from within or from outside, from within the denomination, from outside, from within a particular congregation or from outside? And I'll say it's been difficult because if you somehow distance yourself, and I'll put in parentheses that a lot of what we've experienced with The Witness was we were already being stiff-armed by a lot of uh, folks and so yes. in a way we simply said okay <laughs> you don't want us here there's other stuff for us to do it wasn't that we were just like ah oh, we don't want to be here and left right we, we in, in exactly. some senses we were evicted by the circumstances uh, but that's a parenthetical remark i'll say that 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 if if you somehow distance yourself whether your church leads a denomination whether you lead a, a congregation or what have you then there is a certain loss of insider status, which you may have parlayed into influence for change. So it's been hard for the witness or me personally to speak into some circles because um, like I said, we, we we sort of embraced the exclusion that was already happening. And so people are like, well, you're not, you're not in this. So why are you talking about it? Well, uh, there is that, but but the trade-off, I think, in, in my case, has been well worth it. Um, it goes back to that prophetic distance I was talking about. So mm-hmm. when you're not in the thick of it, you can actually get some perspective about what's going on. And I, I feel like in combination with historical study that I see a lot of what I felt when I was in it, I'm able to name that. And put a framework around it more specifically now that I'm not so entrenched in it. Because when you're entrenched in it, you always have a stake in defending it. And sometimes you end up defending the indefensible. That's my concern. Yes. The other thing is this. When we think about distancing ourselves from a denomination, a network, a congregation, we often hesitate because we think of the losses we might incur whether that's the ability to influence from the inside or the social relationships and and even professional networks that we have in these circles, what we do less of is think of what we might gain. So I have been extremely encouraged that the witness has been able to be a witness in some new circles, whether that's among civil rights activists, whether that's among non-Christians We've been able to go into, uh, whether through articles or this podcast or, or even press passes at different events, we've been able to go di- into different circles than we would have been before because all of our attention was focused on this very small subset of Christianity, which is not necessarily wrong That's or right. bad. It just limited us. And so I would encourage folks who are thinking about these things, how to work for a change, that, that to have a creative imagination... And think about the circles you might be able to be a witness in as you as you move on to something new. There's something new. That you're not just distancing yourself from one thing. You're actually moving closer to something else. And so those two things have been helpful for me to think about because we want to, you know, despite all of our sort of criticisms and whatnot, what, what we're aiming at is for the revelation of truth. And we hope that yes. the truth will actually lead to healing. So this is not us just sitting up here on a mic ranting about all the problems in white evangelicalism or the SBC. It's not that at all. We wouldn't be talking about it if we didn't have deep personal connections and we didn't care and we weren't coming from a principled stance that we think could help. And so that's where all of this arises from. I hope folks hear that. Um, but I just don't. I, I just don't know that there's enough voices or it has been heard enough, the potential problems of a lot of what's happening in American Protestantism right now.
0: I agree wholeheartedly with you, brother. That's a good word, man. Just the biggest thing that I try to remember is that in all of this, are we making much of God? Are we living in a manner and pursuing those things that bring him glory? Or God, you know, God forbid we bring a reproach on the name of Christ uh for not standing as we should for the things that He's called us to actually stand, sacrifice, and advocate for. So absolutely, absolutely.
1: Well, I appreciate you sharing your your personal story and your journey as a pastor uh who's Baptist and affiliated with the SBC. I know it's hard. These are Way more than just sort of abstract philosophical discussions. These have to do with real people, uh, real connections, real history that we have with these organizations. So we'll be in prayer for the SBC and prayer for the new president, J.D. Greer, uh, and all the leaders of the denomination, especially at the local congregational level where so much of the hard and important work of discipling people is done. We appreciate you listening, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mic.